Today we are going to consider the transfiguration of Jesus Christ as we prepare for Luke 9. Let me read to you from one of the eyewitnesses of this event. Peter in 2 Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 16 and following. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I think it's noteworthy that Peter, as he refers to the fact that we aren't following cleverly devised myths, speaks of this very event that he saw with his own eyes. This event is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is not an insignificant passage. And so I pray as we come to this text today, God will give us grace to receive what he has for us here. As we come to this section of Luke, let's remember just what's before it and what comes after it. All of this has to do with the display of this unique person of Jesus. We see the miracle worker in the feeding of the 5,000. We see, secondly, the question as Jesus draws his disciples aside, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the key issue here is Jesus is the Christ of God. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, this declaration of Jesus as the Christ is unique because he avoided the term, especially in Jewish audiences. But in this situation, he not only receives it, but we know from Matthew's account, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. In other words, you, you nailed it. You got this one right. Uh, this is key He's not just a miracle worker, another prophet among men. This is the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, this is the Christ of God. As soon as this is done, Jesus transitions and uses his own term to speak about himself as if to correct misconceptions they would have about the Christ. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Uh, you remember in Matthew's account as well, Peter, who just got an A on the first test, really fails this part. Uh, he tells Jesus that this will never happen to him. He is not going to be rejected. He's not going to be killed. And he actually, in Matthew, we are told, rebukes Jesus. I know that's a bad step right there. Get behind me, Satan. I noticed the significance from the declaration of him being the Christ to the radical misconceptions that Peter would have had that, that being the Christ could not include his suffering or his dying. 
though Jesus had already said these things and will continue to say them, the disciples could not comprehend how the Christ of God could be this person. But notice at the end of the very section, Jesus uses son of man again, but this is the apocalyptic character from Daniel 7. The son of man who comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Uh, this is Jesus' reference just before this weak gap that leads us to this event. He's talking about one day the Son of Man will be seen in his glory and the glory of the Father and the angels. What well, we have the gap here in the transfiguration right after we lead into Jesus' power over the demonic. Every section, notice, is dealing with the unique identity and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of them, we go into this unique event and see, as it were, things open up in ways that we haven't encountered before. The transitional verse is at 27. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So, the very kingdom that Jesus has just been speaking about, some are going to behold that and there are some who are actually standing here with him. This leads us to the scripture reading today. This is the word of God. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which we, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. It's a reading of the word of God. May God now bless his word to our hearts. I want to start with the unique radiance that's encountered in this situation. 
since we are in Luke, it might be good to think about what else happens in Luke that has something that is similar. You remember when the shepherds receive the announcement that Jesus has been born. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And in the King James, I remembered in the first grade, we used to, remember, we used to memorize Bible in school. In the first grade, our whole class memorized Luke chapter two in King James, and they were sore afraid. But they were sore afraid because the glory of the Lord shone around them. It's not just the presence of the angel that's there. It's that God's glory shines out. And what happens is the shepherds are, as it were, awestruck with God's brilliant glory. The angelic announcement about Jesus comes with the shining glory of God. The angels come from God, but it is as if for a moment the veil between heaven and earth is rent asunder and what we see is God's glory piercing through. This announcement must be made with such grandeur because it's an astounding reality. God has become flesh and he is among us. Christ the Savior is born. We see this same general emphasis as I mentioned in just the prior verses that talk about his coming. And he comes in glory and with the glory of the Father. So we have glory at the announcement. We have glory at the coming. But uniquely, thinking about Jesus in his earthly ministry, this is not the norm. This is very much abnormal. What we see in Jesus' coming is what we see in Philippians chapter 2. In he whose very nature God does not count equality with God something to be grasped, but empties himself, taking the very form of a servant and being found in nature as a man, he humbles himself. In human likeness, he becomes obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. When Jesus comes to us, he doesn't come shining. He who is very God joins himself to a fully human nature, two natures, one person, utter mystery of mysteries, but it should send our knees quaking and to the floor in all. But notice when he comes, this emptying that Philippians talks about is primarily of the glory that should be seen in him and known of him and adored in him. It's the selfless servanthood of Jesus Christ that is so astounding that he who deserves to be served by all created things 
and all angels and all ages of ages should himself come to us as a man among men, appearing as us. This is what has staggered me probably in thinking about this in the previous week, and it's kind of new for me anyway. I think about Jesus prior to his public ministry, that he would have lived among us as one of us for 30 years. The last glimpse we get of him is at age 12 at the temple. His time had not yet come. He lives in full obedience to the Father as a man among men in the side somewhere. I don't know about you being put aside if I had all that would be an astounding reality. He lived in the Father's timetable at all times. When it says he became obedient Part of that obedience was coming among us as a man among men until it was time for him to then go into his time of ministry. And yet notice, even then, no change of his affect, no transmorphing into some other likeness, no shining with the glory of God. In all of his life and work and ministry, this is utterly veiled to us. It's not that it's not there. We see its effects. We see it in the miracles. We see it in his works. We see it in his deeds. All that he does shows us the very character and nature of God. But what we don't behold is the glory that's there, and it's there all the time. The staggering part about this is we can know from prior accounts in the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, when Moses goes up on the mountain and meets with God. When Moses comes down, having talked with God, the text says, his face is radiating to the degree that the people can't look upon him. He has to put a veil over his face so that they can hear the words that he has to say. Why? Because he's been with God. Now think, this is reflected glory. Jesus has inherent glory. Jesus is the eternal son who has been with the Father and the Spirit before the worlds were made. The one who has joined himself to us and come to us as a man never lays aside his deity. He is full God. But what we are seeing in him is he who came to seek and to save that which was lost and to do so he must come as a lowly servant for our sakes. The amazing nature of this story as that here is Jesus in prayer, as it were with Moses, talking with God. And then what we see happen is utterly other 
than what we know of Jesus during his earthly ministry. There are times when the utterly other should pique our interest in an amazing way. One thing I think we miss often, similar account, just different type, is Jesus in Gethsemane. And the reason, not a change in his affect, it's a change in his emotional life that is unlike Jesus of Nazareth in any other time. Jesus is undone. It should strike us to then say, why? Why this radical change? What is it about looking into the cup that he sees now with such clarity that causes him to be this way? Likewise, in this situation, this is the only time we have ever been told that Jesus is actually transfigured in his appearance state. He, he appears completely differently. The text says that he was transfigured before them and his face, Matthew says, shone like the sun. I don't know about you. One glimpse at that, I'd know something was radically different. The effect of that light has such a transformative power. His clothes become shining light. The, the very light of his countenance transforms his clothing. Mark tries to put words on it. Whiter than any launderer could launder. Maybe they didn't have new and improved tide. <laughs> or maybe we're talking about touching the holy here. Maybe what we're seeing here is something that's so transformative in its ontology, its very being, that we're encountering the other. And when they see him, he is transformed in their presence. Their minds and eyes can't take it in. Peter says, we saw it. This isn't a cleverly devised myth. This, this isn't one of your Greco-Roman novels about how the gods come and visit men. No, we saw this with our eyes. And in taking it in, he now shares with us that the light of Jesus actually transforms his clothing. Well, why wouldn't it? Moses' face shone just from talking with God. This is the eternal son of God who is with us. What we see is a glimpse now into the being of Jesus that's unique in Scripture but it should make our hearts utterly sore. It's almost like for a moment the veil is pulled back to say this, been there all along. Been there all the time. And see, the, the irony is this, if this had been commonplace, they'd have killed him a long time ago. You see, Jesus had much to do in his time of ministry and ultimately to get to the cross. 
So this is not shown, but it doesn't mean it hadn't been there all along. See, what we see in the transfiguration is this. Christians, this is part of your inheritance in Jesus. To understand who he is, the transfiguration is in the book for us to get this kind of in our mind and in our, our memory banks to say, I need to always think thus about him. We can think too purely humanly about Jesus sometimes. We can even make Jesus in our image quite well. I remember when I worked at the bookstore at Reformed Theological Seminary. We used to have a file called the Wacko File. And what that was for is every crazy piece of Christian literature that would come that they'd try to get us to buy. But many of them had these images of Jesus and the reason some of them were so humorous, you had Jesus the surfer guy. And he, my, I may had the perfect highlights in his hair. Uh, Jesus, the skateboarder. Here's what's so disgusting about all these images. It was just attempts to make Jesus to be what we want, what we like. To make Jesus prefer me. And here's the irony. Jesus may appear as man among men, but he's always so much more. He's never less, but he's always so much more. And as we encounter him here, we see this in his glow. The shining radiance of God comes from him. I was talking with my wife yesterday and we were recalling with great fondness, an early workmate I had. Her name is Judy Benway. Judy worked with me very early. I was in clinical dietetics, was studying for my bachelor's degree and had not yet gone into ministry. So we were in an interim period and I met Judy. I worked with her closely. And Judy was made to make babies. Um, what I mean by that is Judy just was a, an ideal candidate. If you wanted to say, how does someone go through pregnancy well? Oh my goodness, this woman. Uh, from the moment she would get pregnant, uh, she was as happy as a clam. She never got sick. Now women, I'm sorry. if I'm, I'm probably, Some of you probably get sick the whole time. Uh, envy Judy, not me. Uh, it was envious to watch. I mean, I worked with her every day. She, she never got sick. She, she actually, it was almost like watching her transform before your eyes. And as Judy would get more pregnant, there was just a, a countenance about Judy that was incredible to see. And, and, and as I would behold her, I would just say, Judy, you, you just look so good through your pregnancy. And she did. She just did. It was almost like she, she glowed. Now, she didn't shine, but listen, her countenance truly changed. I saw her in between pregnancies, saw her each time she carried. And my goodness, you could just, you could see it. Now think about that. 
If I can pick up Judy's change, and that's just coming out of a human being, imagine what it would be like to encounter Jesus if he let us glimpse into the fullness of at least who he is. The disciples get a glimpse of the glory that has been there all along and it's earth-shaking for them. Changes their paradigm. How much more is the eternal word who is with God and was God going to change you when you see his countenance? In Greek, they talk about a, a term that's used once as a hopox legomeno. I always marveled at that word. I thought, why make one word harder than another? Uh, the reason those words are unique is since they're only used once, you don't have another reference to be able to say, how is this word used in other places? How do I look at it in other textual settings? It, it's a hapax legomena, just a one-of-a-kind thing. Notice in Jesus' earthly ministry, this is the hapax legomena of seeing him. Seeing him in any other way than he would have been seen otherwise. Here's our own confession. Listen to these beautiful words. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal son of God, became man. And so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Listen, I don't know about you, but that is a great confession. That sums up the, the glories of the person of Christ in a, in a paragraph, in a way in which it's hard to get better. Being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Don't miss that last part. He never stops this. For your sake and mine, he never stops this. And what the disciples glimpse into is that nature that had not been seen and it takes their breath away. We turn now to the second unique, I'll just call this the uniquely poor plan of Peter. Uh, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. They're talking with Jesus. There is great irony in what they're doing here because notice, Moses and Elijah should stretch you a lot have long passed off the scene in terms of history, but both are very alive and well and talking with Jesus. That should make you so happy in God. The Old Testament saints who died in faith have been with the Lord in conscious reality. They're very aware of Jesus. They're very aware of his ministry. They're talking with him. We miss this in our translations. His departure here as ESV is closed. The word is exodus. Moses is talking to Jesus about his exodus. That's a hoot. 
In other words, Jesus is gonna perform an exodus that's far greater than what Moses did. And Moses is talking with Jesus about the Jerusalem trip that he's going on and how he is going to set captives free. That's great conversation. It's a shame we don't have a little transcript of that dialogue because the law and the prophets are bearing witness to the Son of God here. The joy of what's happening in this scene is conscious, aware, and very alive. Saints from the old are ministering to the Christ of God who's on center stage. The uniquely poor plan comes from Peter. He wants to build three tents. It's good for us to be here. There's a lot of ways to look at that. Here could be one of the emphasizing points. In other words, this is holy ground here. Now the challenge with building the three tents would have been this. Then you have a place that's set apart in prominence. Now this was a common practice in the Old Testament. Many places are renamed because of what took place in that place, many. There's something different that comes in Jesus that kind of transforms that whole thing. Think of John chapter four and the discussion with the woman at the well. The, the dialogue is coming from her. You Jews say that it's on that mountain, Jerusalem. Our forefathers, this mountain. What's Jesus' discussion back with her after he tells her the salvation is of the Jews and you worship what you do not know? There's a pretty significant interchange. The time is coming and now is when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will true worshipers worship the Father. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now this idea of locationally significant places. Listen, if Jerusalem is significant, then I don't know what is. And what does Jesus say? A transforming time has come and now is when worship is going to be person identified in a way that it never was before. It's always been about place. It's been about tabernacle. It's been about temple. But now it's about me. It's about me. Praise God. You see, if not, we'd be planning our holy pilgrimage today to go to some sites. I've seen it in, in Jerusalem. People doing their holy pilgrimage at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, bowing down on the floor and kissing a rock. You see, we're idolatrous people. We're prone that way. And what does Jesus say? I'm bringing fulfillment in such a way that what you would formerly have identified with place and tents and shrines, that whole thing is coming to an end in me, in me. It's a, it's a radical paradigm shift and Jesus is bringing it. Peter is longing just to stay there. But we probably might have said the same thing. Lord, it's good to be here. 
let's just stay. See, I think about Jim Croce. I'm old enough. I can't. If I could save time, <coughs> excuse me, if I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away just to spend them with you. Now, can you hear Peter just change one part? To stay here with you. Just be here. It's good to be here. Everybody should want to be here. Let's, let's set up some tents and stay here. See, the one thing Peter's repeating that he missed from his prior encounter just a week ago was this. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must die and then be raised again. To, to stay there in as much as it's exciting and thrills the soul still misses the key part. Jesus didn't come to shine on the mountain. He came to die on a mountain, the place of the skull. He came to give himself. We don't yearn for time to stand still, at least not at this point, because the work is not yet done. Salvation has not come. Jesus has not yet paid the price. He must needs still go on. The shining must sometime come to a cease. Uh, Peter didn't know what he said. Here's the unique correction at the end, and here we have the audible. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Notice the emphasis of the Father. Don't get enamored with Moses, nor Elijah. It's not their day. They just pointed to the day when he would come. This is my son that I love, my chosen one. This is him. Listen to him. Peter, listen to him. He just told you what he needed to do the last time about a week ago when he talked to you about these same things. Listen to him. Heed him. Don't heed any other voice. Don't make any other tents. In fact, scrap the whole tent idea altogether. You see, we would do well. Uh, I have been to the uh, sites around Israel twice in my life, once right after my conversion, once much later with my dad. I was thrilled to go. Gave me good historical context of some of the things that I had read. Um, but oh, the idolatry. Oh, the idolatry. The place is pervaded with shrines. I told Crystal one of the things just yesterday that I recalled was our 
tour group was actually walking through as they were creating a shrine. Now, hear what I'm saying there. There was nothing there. They were making a there there and putting signs outside of it of a place now that you could pay to come in and visit, which wasn't even legit. They were making it. In fact, it looked like the things that you see in Disney where they make the things that look like mud. You can just tell it's not mud. It almost looks like that uh, hodgepodge stuff or whatever they use, mod podge. In other words, we are so prone to idolatrous behavior that if Jesus had allowed anything to go forward with Peter's plan, we would never have heard Jesus for who he is. People would still be going to that spot. They'd be bringing offerings with him. The correction comes from the Father. Listen to him. We have very few instances where the Father audibly speaks. Jesus' baptism is one, and the Trinity is uniquely revealed. The Father's voice acknowledging the beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. The Spirit's descent in the form of a dove that remains on Jesus. And there's only one other that I know of in John 12. And Jesus is now at the end of his ministry, going into the time of the passion. And he's talking to the Father in public about glorifying him. And he cries out, Father, glorify your name. And the Father actually responds audibly. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, maybe what doesn't stand out to you is this. See how rare for there to ever be any voice from heaven that we hear with our ears in Jesus' whole life. That puts this in another unique category. It also should make us realize the point of what he's saying is crucially important. This is the son. This is where, where you receive from me. Notice Jesus. Have I been with you so long and you do not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's he saying? You don't get more of God than me. If you've been with me, you've had the fullness of God in your presence. To ask for something other is to ask wrongly, for the Father sent the Son to reveal himself to us. He is the Word who expresses God fully to us. See, we don't get part of God. We get God in Jesus Christ. He is the word made flesh. When he comes to us, he reveals God uniquely. Listen to him. Listen to him. You need no other authority. You need no other priority. Jesus Christ, son of God. I'm gonna close let me challenge here on this point. My, my whole purpose in this message is just simply to get you enamored with Jesus. I don't want to move you any other place. Let's worship him. 
Let your hearts get caught into the scene of the glory of what they beheld. Hear the Father say, it's him. It's him. Worship him. Let your heart go out in faith and say, yes, that's, that's my Savior. That's my Lord and God. I worship him. I take hold of him. I hear him when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I believe in him. I seize him. I love him. I adore him. I worship him. Listen. Listen to him. Listen to him. We would do well to shut off our TVs and listen to him. He's still Lord of all the nations. There's nothing going on in our crazy world that's outside the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Oh, ye trembling ones, take heart. The shining one is your Savior and God. Peace be unto you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Not be afraid. Oh, how we need to encounter Jesus as he is and let him speak his words of peace over us. Peter is not utterly wrong-headed. Let me stop there. So I just want to make sure and clear that up. Because Peter is enamored with Jesus. It's good that we be here. Now, his idea is really bad. But listen, it isn't as if the shining Jesus in all of his glory doesn't show up again in the Bible. For in the book of the Revelation. We see that shining one again in chapter one. And guess where he shows up again? New heavens and new earth. There's no need of the sun or the moon for the lamb is the light of the city. You know what the promise of the Bible is? Then we shall see him as he is. Now, the great part of that for us is this. And we shall be changed to be like him. For we shall see him as he is. R.C. used to say often, I don't know whether we need to be changed to see him or if in seeing him, we are changed. But listen, beholding him and us being transformed are two in the same thing. And that's the yearning of our hearts that in unveiled glory, we shall behold him as he is. And what's the Bible tell you, believer? And you shall be like him. Our glorious hope for our future is all tied up in the shining one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. There's one mediator between God and man. He became man, Christ Jesus, so that he may bring us to God. Glory be unto Jesus say, listen to him. It's my glorious privilege to be with you today and to preach God's word to you. You're always such an attentive audience to the word of God. I want to commend you. I can tell you've got a good pastor here. 
So Dan is a good exegete of scripture. So you guys are spoiled rotten. Uh, uh, but listen, I just reap the benefits when I come. It keeps in the rhythm of what God is doing here. So I want to thank you. I want you to know from my heart, thank you for having me. Let's, uh, let's receive the words of confirmation.